And Benteke said something that really struck me about, well, he's your friend. He said, but he's not your best friend. I think he's very, very clever at diffusing guys who are not happy. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Oh, the shape that will get. You've let all the fans down. Can we not knock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything, uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you! Disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33 here in Off The Ball. I'm in the call. Coming up on tonight's show, I'll be joined by Adam Pope from the BBC as we talk about Leeds United and their struggles this year and a potential takeover by the 49ers, the 49ers off the NFL, of course. First, though, it was the final night of the Champions League group stages during the week. All four English sides progressed to the last 16. But the big story is that Barcelona have been knocked out. They finished third in their group after a 3-0 thrashing from Bayern Munich during the week. Arthur O'D is on the line with me to discuss. Arthur, hello. How are you? Very well. Um, it, another Champions League night. It's it's always a strange night, the final night of the group stages, because a lot of the games are dead rubbers. But there were some nice little narratives going on during the week. You know, COVID situations, snowstorms <laughs> in, in the middle of Europe, Barcelona battling it out against uh, Bayern Munich to saved their spot in the Champions League, obviously came up short, but the English sides once again come up as the main conversation during the week because all four of them have now progressed to the Champions League uh, last 16. Liverpool, Man City, United top in their groups. Chelsea dropping down to second after a poor result against Zenit in Petersburg, but it didn't really matter in the end. They still go through. We had Gabriel Mercotti on the show on Wednesday night on Off the Ball discussing sort of the dominance of English football within Europe these days. And the idea behind it was the fact that, you know, Liverpool had a, essentially a B team. They made eight changes going into the into the game against AC Milan and they just completely dominated them throughout the entire game. And it was almost a stark reminder of AC Milan, right? They are the currently one of the best sides in Serie A and they just got absolutely dominated by... Nat Phillips and the lads for Liverpool. So it was it was sort of a strange situation. So I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on the general idea of how far ahead England and the English teams are from the rest of Europe at the minute. Yeah, I mean, on paper, yeah, it seems pretty conclusive. It, it's interesting you mentioned that thing, that the situation in Milan. And it, it's like, <laughs> it feels like it's quite a recurring trend here that every time anything comes up with Liverpool, anything bring it back to United. But if you bring it back to United under Ferguson in that kind of pomp era, and you think again of some of the games that they won with relative ease when like you had like maybe two, three normal starters and then you had players brought in. So like I remember distinctly that semi-final, funny enough, the semi-final of the Champions League when they bet Schalke and they hammered Schalke, I'm pretty sure. And I'm pretty sure, I should have said before, I'm pretty sure like Darren Gibson it was either starting or scored that night. But you kind of get that that point where you like you go through some of those teams, you're like, Jesus, remember that team as well that everyone kind of talked about that bet Arsenal in the FA Cup? And you're like that eleven, it's like God almighty, like that's not and that's still a good enough Arsenal team. So my overall point with that is that with the Liverpool thing, it's like, yeah, 
it wasn't their strongest eleven playing against them. But I do think that when a team is going as well as they're going, a lot of people can rise to the level. It's not like a, it's not necessarily a true kind of thing. Like if you want to look at a, de, a sort of a depleted or really kind of second string squad, you look at that team Man United played last night. Yeah, like that's you know you don't like I I find it hard to talk call Liverpool a second string squad when you still have Allison in goal, you still have Salah starting. You see, like it's it is and it isn't like a lot of people will rise to that level. But your question of dominance, yeah, I mean, I, like it's see, I think now I'm interested in your point of view on this because I think you're instinctively resistant to that idea simply because it is the Premier League we're talking about and the hype around it. Mm. So that's I'm pretty sure that's where you're going to start off with. That's yeah. Look, I'm I'm not naive. I do see the reality of the situation where Man City topped their group, Liverpool topped their group, United topped their group. You know, there there's been a double English final, what, two times in the last five years. England have been, you know, generally quite strong in Europe, but I think you have to be you have to you have to take a, a more broader outlook at the situation here and the situation is that in the top leagues in Europe, because I think there's two sort of arguments here. The, the argument is that either England is the dominant you know, league in Europe or it's the most competitive league in Europe and that's where everyone wants to play it. There's, so there's two sort of separate arguments going on there. The first, I would argue that you know England isn't dominant more than any other league when it comes to European football because in Real Madrid are the, the kings of Europe. Bayern Munich are as good as any of those English sides. And granted, yeah, the Serie A, you know, you can almost, you know, right, not right off, but you can de- definitely put it to the side for the time being. It does go in peaks and troughs, but also the reality is that the Premier League is the, mo- is the richest league in the world. So the, the most uh, obvious correlation between success and... Um, and what is going on is the wage bill. That's like that. That's pretty much conclusive, uh, based on studies that have been done. The higher the wage bill, the more likely you are yeah. to have success. English teams have the highest wage bills; they're more likely to have success. And then the third thing I would say on that is that Pep Guardiola, Thomas Tuchel, Jurgen Klopp, three best managers in the world, the three best clubs in England, the three most dominant teams in Europe. It's 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 quite simple when you look at it that way. Yeah. And it's interesting, I was just thinking about there beforehand, like when, when you take those three particularly, and so between them, before coming to the job they're currently in, all three had been, at least like obviously Guardiola had won two, and Klopp and Tuchel had both been to a Champions League final with other teams. Like it, it really is the kind of, and even now, like in the United situation is unique, but like as the fourth team in there, you still have Rangnick who's been, his career is obviously a bit different, but he's still been to a Champions League semi-final with another team. And it's kind of, um, it, see, I think that if you really drill down into this, there's nothing, I don't know, it's like shaky, not shaky ground, but there's very little English about the English Premier League yeah, in strict that, terms of yeah. that. Like, it, it, it's it's just, it's not, It's and I was talking, funny enough, talking in, it, like in, um, in the office to Phil Egan during the week about this, and we're kind of still going across it. Like, it's been, so it's still, I think it's still 1991 is the last time an English coach won the, Premier League or the Premiership or whatever, you know, which is it that is like imagine you could never imagine that happening in Germany, Italy, anywhere, Spain. Like it's just un it's so it it really does seem like something's been kind of um traded off. 
So if you want to have that kind of dominance and English teams have the dominance, but you're you're trading off something else, you're not, it's not, this isn't the strength of English football, really. It's the strength of, as you're saying, like it's money in English football. Mm-hmm. And it, a, you know, and a relative spread of it. Not not through any sort of, you know, sense of equality or fairness, but just a lot of money seem, happens to have come in and it's just been spread out. So you have, like Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool may as well be in any country in the world. Like there's not... There's nothing distinct about it. It's just fortunate that England is where this money has come into. Yeah, it's the best marketed league in the world, and yeah, that's that's just how it. Ha- it's just how it, it it happened to fall, and the European aspect to the Premier League is quite interesting because it is also the most global uh, league in the world as well. It's it's very un English, you would actually say, because you know, like in in Germany, you've you've obviously got the the 50 plus one rule, the distinctive German feel to it. This, the Spanish side, some Spanish sides still have rules against buying players from outside of the yeah. regions. If you look at the Basque clubs in particular, whereas England is just free for all. It's, it's pure on capitalism. That's, that's what the Premier League is. It's embraced the capitalistic world that we live in and um, success has followed, but to the detriment of, the smaller clubs in England, you would argue. The other side that I do take issue with, I, I actually don't have any resistance to admitting that, you know, Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea are three of the best teams in the world right now because they are. Uh, my issue is is when I, I don't, I firmly believe that the Premier League is no better than the La Liga or Bundesliga or maybe maybe it is compared to the Serie A when it comes to the the spread of the quality throughout the league because a lot of people will say the Premier League is the most competitive league in the world which it is to an extent but also the three three teams that we named there Liverpool Chelsea Man City they're the three most dominant teams in the league for the last decade before that you had Man United Arsenal and Chelsea as well realistically over the last 20 25 years there have been four teams that have been competing for the league title. And generally it is between two and the best of the rest. If you take Liverpool Man City's rivalry over the last couple of years, take United Chelsea's rivalry, take United Arsenal's rivalry. Generally it's the best two and the best of the rest follow. And I, w- I would say that's exactly how every other league in Europe has run as well. If you take Real Madrid, Barcelona, you know, Bayern Munich, Dortmund or Bayern Munich, Mönchengladbach, depending on who's competing, it's, one very good te- team, a second very good team, and then the rest are quite good, but not much better than you know everyone else. Yeah, I don't know now. I don't like. It depends, like how many degrees you want to go with it. Like if you look at, like, geez, I don't think as many people would be tuning into the Premier League week in week out if it was a case like where are Bayern going for their tenth in a row? Mm-hmm. Did I mishear that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Juve have slipped up only by their own doing. I mean, it's that's on that's their own fault, and it really I, it looks like they'll be back sooner rather than later anyway. And then you kind of yeah, Barca Real kind of share between themselves, and Atletico Madrid got in twice. But um, yeah, like the other questions, it's very very hard to know. Like, how do Sampdoria get on against Brighton? I don't know. Yeah. Well, you see, that's the question. I, you, you need you need to put these sides up against each other because I I don't know. Nobody is going to tell me that watching Burnley against Southampton is any more entertaining than watching Levante take on you know I don't know Getafe. For sure. You know, it's there's there's very good sides and then there's okay sides and that's yeah. kind of the way the leagues run. 
Um, I suppose that, like what I'd be interested in, and it's it's um, it's very interesting. You take now all the kind of the the German model. It almost becomes a case now of a. Uh, it like not even like who's producing. So who are producing the like when it comes down to that? So say like I don't like I don't know, and we really are just hypothesizing. But say you take some. Say you take Sampdoria and Brighton, and um, you know Sampdoria. Forgive me, I don't know who's in charge. But if you, it strikes me that in a situation like that, it's going to come down to who probably is the better coach, or who kind of has the better in that regard. Like who can outmatch in that regard. So. It strikes me. Then you kind of come back to that issue with managers in England. It always, the, the, I think, a big issue is the fact that, and maybe maybe they'll change it because it certainly changed from the players' point of view. Like their development of players now is incredible, but like mm. you're still looking that they're still having to bring in coaches to kind of get the most out of these teams that are there. Like, and that's kind of that's all that. It, it's not that it bothers me. It, it's like you want kind of the best people there. And it's, it's amazing. Like if you're watching the premier league now and you see the play, the, the coaches that we're getting to see work are literally like the best in the world by a mile. Like, and you know, like the coach of Real Madrid is the ex Everton boss. <laughs> the, the previous, the previous coach of Barcelona is the ex Everton boss. <laughs> it's like, you're kind of, that part is fantastic, but I imagine in the long term, it's probably an issue it's, it's it's an issue for English football. Like even such a, like it's just that has to be. Surely you want to have managers in a position who are from you know just like the way we want the way that we take such joy now in the fact that Stephen Kenny's the Ireland manager, and like whoa yeah. like there's like not, not we you know like we developed this this guy like he developed amongst us and now he's taken on to thing where it's kind of like oh just get in whoever get in Ralph Hasenhutel at Southampton great manager doing a good job but like. Is that the ideal? Like that's it's not it just doesn't seem like a great model. Mm. Yet Sean Dyche is hanging in there. He is. <laughs> but it shows you, like he's like it like it depends what Burnley I'm sure like there's people in Burnley who'd love to have more sort of ambitious thing. But to be fair, like he's done a fantastic job. I know we're going off yeah. the thing, and I know, but like it's just incredible like that he's just just held this team here. And like, geez, like I like I like I'm presumed somewhat similar when you're growing up. Like I vaguely recall Burnley coming up. In the mid noughties, once I think they bet my United one nil. I, I think I don't know who scored. It might have been Robbie Blake. Anyway, before that, like growing up, before that, like as like a young boy, like I'd never really heard of Burnley. It didn't, you know what I mean. No. And now there's the fixture, just there. That's yeah. That's down to him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been operating off the sort of the two point five year rule where fans start to want more from their club, and you can you can kind of see it with Graham Potter now. Where oh, yeah. <laughs> when they when they come up when they come up to the Premier League, this is more specifically to newly promoted sides. When they come up to the Premier League, staying up the first year is vital. That's all you want. That's all you care about. If you do well, all the better. Then the following year, you want to see a little bit more progression. But halfway through that year, if you are not playing prime, you know Barcelona or prime uh, Liverpool, Gegenpress, you know unbelievable world football without spending a penny, then you know the fans are going to turn on you. That's that's sort of what. That's sort of why Graham Potter got the job, essentially. I mean, like yeah. Chris Hutton was was doing fine with Brighton, but only fine, and they wanted to yeah. see progression. So, I, I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens, Graham Potter, now with the, the fans booing him because his team just simply cannot score, even though they started the season um, really brightly. We should touch on Barcelona before we finish up with the Champions League. As I said, they were knocked out of the, the group stages, beaten 3-0 by Bayern Munich, Benfica go through instead of them. 
seventh in the La Liga. And Xavi is all of a sudden thinking, God, maybe I should have waited to yeah. take this job. It's, you know, it's, it's very interesting. It's hard from the outside in. I suppose you hear so many numbers quoted, but I'm, I'm very interested to learn. Like when Graham Hunter was on AM uh, a few weeks gone out and he talked about that it would be, I mean, when, when you're talking about how much money they owe, I, I don't know what another X number of million on top of that is, but he did describe it as being like, a pretty catastrophic state of affairs if they didn't get out of the group stages, which they now haven't. And it's just very interesting to see what happens. Like, I, it's it's phenomenal, really, isn't it? Like, I like, and you, it's not that long ago. Like, when we were watching them specifically under Guardiola as well, and you're like, these these can't be stopped. This is just mm. it's too good. Like, they're too. It's everything set up. Oh, they got and and I know like a lot of things and you kind of. It's very easy again without looking too far when you hear about like La Masia and stuff, and you're like, oh, geez, they've got this this permanent pipeline. This will never stop. They're just going to have these players, just like this perpetual thing. This team, they're here forever now. They're here to stay. <laughs> just like, I mean, people talk about Man United. God almighty, this is kind of gone. Yeah. You know, for in terms of fall, fallings from grace, it's pretty bad. My favorite thing about the week, and I, I just kind of find it pretty funny, is. The fact that Bayern Munich played their full strand side despite already being on 15 points. Uh, like they were they were through twice already in the group stages. The closest I think I think Benfica went through with nine points potentially after last night. Maybe it might have been even less than that. I think it might have been uh, might have been eight points. Bayern Munich are on 18 points. <laughs> they they played their full strand side just to knock Barcelona out. And I just wonder. Whether that was just you know sheer you know, keep the keep the ball rolling for Bayern Munich or was it a little bit okay if we knock these out that lessens the chance of them actually getting any good over the next um, over the next few months under Xavi if they start to you know settle down a little bit but I mean just looking at their starting lineup they had Sergio Dest up front yeah. with Memphis Depay and Usman Dembele that's a far cry from the years of Messi Suarez and Neymar playing up front that year that they scored. Well, was it over 120 goals in a in a yeah. season? I mean, that that that's realistic. Where where it was, I I put my final nail in the coffin for Barcelona when they signed Arturo Vidal because it just <laughs> it was like 40 million for absolutely no reason for a player who was never going to play for them. So, yeah, like for, for our generation, I guess, or uh, people of a certain age, this Barcelona side from have been it, it, they've been the go to, you know phrase of the standard of football that you can get to if you have the players and the manager it's you know the prime Barcelona under Pep Guardiola one of the best teams of all time that was that ended 2012 you know that's that was this decade that well last decade depending on whether you're counting the years in COVID or not but (laughs) like that's that's where we're at with Barcelona within within eight nine years they've gone from the greatest team of all time to you know, out of the Champions League at, at the in the group stages, so that's that's how far you can fall in such a short time, which sort of leads into United and Ragnik and sort of almost saving the club from going down a very dark route and you know continuing. Obviously, it's not as bad as what Barcelona is in terms of the debt, but in terms of just the continuation of failure after failure after failure yeah. with the manager. Ralph Ragnick took over the club last week for a, a game against Crystal Palace. Had them again then for the midweek game against Young Boys and a draw. 11 changes made to that side. Obviously not United's strongest team, but 
curious to get your early thoughts on on Rangnick and what he's trying to do at the club. I think he's an extremely impressive figure. Like knowing as much as we can possibly know, and you can really only extrapolate one proper match and whatever. You know, I only had a few hours with him, but I just think there's just a good sense of calm. He just kind of seems like he kind of he knows what he's doing. But whereas, like with and it, you don't want to ret to be too retrospective with things, but like when you're looking at other equally experienced, you know, far more successful managers beforehand, like Van Hal and Mourinho, they, there still seemed to be some sort of a little bit of a desperation on their part for something to prove that this is kind of you know that it and that kind of I can translate itself as a bit sort of just antagonistic at times and a little bit it ultimately didn't work, but. I just feel with Rangnick coming in that I like it's it's yeah it's very very early days but he does seem very very calm together. I like the fact that he has a very clear idea of what he wants to do, but the fact that already we kind of see well like that's that's nowhere near as kind of um, restricted as we might have been led to believe in the build up. Like he's clearly it's clearly malleable enough that he will incorporate what's in, with what he has in front of him and not just try and fit kind of square into circle holes just to suit his system. So I think all of that, geez, it's, I think it's extremely positive for my United in general. I really, really do. And I, I think it's, um, I do, I'm already kind of, again, I, I just, I am thinking already ahead to kind of the summer. And it's like, whatever way it goes and whatever way if he comes or goes or whatever, I really think they're finally on a path. It just, they have a plan and a plan that will, probably work and a plan that will probably the players I imagine would be happy enough to buy into because like let's face it as well I remember just talking about this like to another friend of mine who was my United fan and about like it must be so exciting for some of those players to be playing under a guy you know and they'll have done they'll have known probably not too much about him beforehand but they'll have done their kind of research and stuff they'll have read around him they'll know the links to Klopp and Germany and all these different things and now they're kind of getting be a part of something like that I think it must be very exciting just from you know from because they are all professionals and it kind of they want to excel professionally and to have that kind of proper coaching now and you know serious proper coaching and a plan Mm. I I just I imagine it's a very exciting time around the club I don't know what you've made of them yeah I get very much agree with what you're saying there and I, I don't like typecasting him because I mean it is unfair to do so but it does remind me of when Tuchel came into Chelsea because yeah. immediately I remember Tuchel's first uh, press conference after their, their first game and he was asked about what he was trying to do. And he, I, I don't have it off, off the top of my head, but he said, okay, we're doing this to shore up this. We're doing this to fix the midfield. And obviously we're conceding way too many goals. So this is going to fix the defense. And with four, within four weeks, it was, you know, it's fixed. And that's what Chelsea yeah. have been doing this year. They don't concede goals. And in Tuchel's press conference after the game, he was asked what he did. And he was like, okay, we played a 4-2-2-2. Here's why we did it. Here's why it was effective. And here's why I'm trying to play this because it can fit in the different players. And the first thing he said was, obviously, we're conceding too many goals in the counterattack. This will hopefully stop the counterattack. And against Crystal Palace, it was very effective. So immediately he's identified his problem. He's searching for the solution and he's searching for a solution that works for the players that he's, he's, he's got at his disposal. So clar- clarity of thinking is what I would put it down to. And I, I think it should be an exciting time for United. And hopefully it does work out for them. 
it may not work out for them. It could, you know, fall flat in his face in, the, in like six or seven weeks after certain players start kicking up a fuss again or, or dressing room drama happens again. But, you know, you never know what happens with United. It might actually all click into place. He has brought in two play- people into the club, which is an interesting one because we did hear that it was going to be two appointments. Uh, Sasha Lenz coming in from uh, RB Leipzig, a previous employee at Leipzig under Ragnick. He's a sports psychologist. And Chris Armas coming in as uh, the replacement for Michael Carrick as assistant boss. Armas was a head coach of New York Red Bulls. He took over from Jesse March, who he had worked under uh, previously. And he obviously has worked with uh, Ragnick as well because it all came under his his uh, bubble when he was in charge of all the RB sort of, I don't know what you call them, franchises, I guess. The psychology element is an interesting one. What, what, what's your general thoughts on sports psychology and bringing a psychologist into this dressing room? I mean, it's, I, I find it hard. I would find it hard for anyone to argue against the, the positive impact it can have. Like it would, like it would seem like, I know like one of the most pronounced kind of ones in, in Irish sport recently has obviously been Caroline Curd in with the Limerick Curlers. And again, some people question well, what does she actually do or whatever else? But, uh, you know, I've never heard any of those players speak out about her in anything but the most glowing terms. And it, like there always is a kind of a, a sort of a mysterious element to it. Like you, you never actually like you're just saying there with explaining the tactics. No one actually explains what it is that's going on. And I, I like that's kind of always like, well, OK, how how is this happening? But then you kind of look, it's like, right, well. She's been with Limerick here. She worked with Paul O'Connell, who spoke glowingly about her. She worked with Tipperary Hurlers when they won, I think, in 26, 2010. She's worked with the Dublin footballers when they won. She worked with her own footballers when they won in All-Ireland. Like, so you're like, well, is it a fluke? Is things so? I mean, but my kind of thoughts are this. I don't understand enough about what they do day to day, but it can't hurt. Like, it literally, yeah. it, it's, only, it's a positive thing. And, and I'm sure with all these things, it always seems to be the case that no one's going to force you to talk if you don't want to talk, but just that the option is there. And God knows as well, like for a lot of those players, that like if you consider it, and you kind of, we do overestimate it because it is such a, or underestimate it because it's such a a unique world that those kind of players inhabit. But like, <laughs> imagine, that's their workplace. And just the upheaval of the last few years, like everyone's obviously had upheaval with COVID, but like we were like, if you think someone like Luke Shaw, and he's been there since I think 2014, 15, and Van Hal was his first manager. Now think of the journey <laughs> Luke Shaw has been on in six years at Man United. And it's like, it could be great for someone to just go down and it's like, just have a chat and just kind of lay out what, well, what goals do you want? What do you want to set? What, what's your aim for being here? Because so much at Man United seems to have been ad hoc that it would mm. make sense, I think, to bring someone in who can help players and maybe staff and coaches, I presume everyone, kind of... Um, just organize their lives a little bit better and within the, whatever the general framework that's going to be brought about by Ragnick himself, presumably. I, I, I mean, I, 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 I'd love to know your thoughts on it. I wonder, does anyone have a kind of a, a, a measured reason for thinking it would be a bad idea? No. Well, I, I think people have a general cynicism towards sports psychology because they see it sort of as a voodoo that can't actually yeah. be proven. Which I, I totally get, I understand it, but also I did we did a, a whoop series here in Off the Ball with loads of top level athletes from from Ireland, Connor Myler and Connor Murray, Katie McCabe, 
Fint McCarthy, all, all them. And we talked about like, you know, recovery and food and hydration, everything they do to get ready. And psychology was part of it as well. But one of the most interesting parts of it was when I was speaking to the experts on recovery and the science behind everything. And they basically said that if the athlete thinks that it works, then it works. It doesn't matter if there's, if, so say for example, the hydrotherapy that can't be proven in any real way to have actual benefits to, uh, to recovery. But if the athlete believes that that helps, yeah, then it almost works as a placebo and it does help. So th- that, th- that's basically how I look at the psychology element as well. People can say, oh, you can't prove that anything it works. Well, like if the athlete believes that it works and they feel better for doing it, then that can only have positive and a positive impact on their play. So like that that's where I sort of view it that like it's sort of like what you said, there's actually no harm that can come from this. If the athletes if they don't buy into it, they don't buy into it. But if they yeah. do and it helps them and it makes it makes them feel better, then it can only have a plus side. And, and, and everyone won't buy into it. But like it's the same thing in day to day life when people talk about I know it's a slightly different thing, but when people talk about going to see you know with with like therapy as well like just if, if for people like i know it's a, it's a broader thing when you're talking about your mental health like which is essentially what it's coming down to and i suppose you know some people don't need that some people do need that it doesn't mean that it wouldn't work one way or another but like yeah i, I think it's a bit of a no-brainer and like there's always resistance like it looks it's it was so interesting as well watching back ahead of ahead of time um one of this the, the he was giving some sort of talk at a coach's voice event uh, Rangnick was and he was talking again about like goals coming from set pieces and it's like whatever it was 30% of goals coming from set pieces or whatever conceded or whatever it was and it's like well it would make sense if you work 30% of your time should be spent working on set pieces like that kind of makes sense and you're like but nobody does that and then you think oh geez yeah Klopp and Liverpool brought in that fellow the throw-in expert and it's like a throw-in anchor, and you're like, it just, it seems so kind of, it's very sort of, well, you know, what difference, what could really happen from a throw-in? You're just getting the game restarted, you're like, okay, we'll peel it back, peel it back. So you think of the same thing with like, when it comes to that sort of psychology front of it, like, geez, if, if, it, if it helps one player, if it helps anyone, like if it helps the coaches, it might well just be for Rangnick, he might find it comforting to have someone around there. So like, you know, where everyone talked about, oh, Ferguson was a fantastic psychologist. Well, he was and he wasn't. He was a fantastic psychologist while he needed you. And he mm-hmm. didn't really, you know, like, <laughs> Keane's 50 and he's still pretty bitter about how that end, how all that kind of his United career ended. And it's like, how was the psychology there? So, yeah, I think, again, I think it can only be a good thing, man. I think it is positive. And I think, again, it just seems to me at the very best, it seems a very grown-up thing to do, mm-hmm. which is something that's been rare at United. And again, this will come ultimately come down to whether it's a success or not. Yeah. If 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 United do well, then it'll be an athletic piece about this guy and how much he changed things. <laughs> and then if he doesn't do well, it'll be about the overcoaching within the system and getting complicated and everything like that. That that's just how it goes in in the world of football. That is where we'll leave you off, Arthur, because coming up after the break, we're talking to uh, Adam Pope from the BBC about Leeds United, their struggles this year, and a potential takeover from the 49ers as well in the NFL. So, Arthur, thanks very much for this evening. 
Spot on, cheers. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now we're turning our attention to Leeds United. Super Leeds are not so super this year, and I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Pope from the BBC, who's going to tell us why, and also tell us a little bit about this 49ers takeover that has been reported uh, throughout the week. Adam, thanks very much for joining me today. Pleasure, Ander. So the 49ers takeover we'll get to in just a little second, but... Leeds United, they have not been as good as they have were last year. Obviously, you have the initial um, bounce when you come to the Premier League. Sometimes you can take some teams by surprise. But Leeds this season, 15th in the table, three wins, seven draws, five defeats, a lot of injuries along the way. But maybe if you could just explain why you think Leeds have not been as strong as they were last year. Yeah, when you say the seven draws, and uh, I think that's where you look at the, the big difference, really. You know, they're just not a side that really draws under Bielsa. Um, what I would say, um, the difference has been for me is that a lot of the players aren't performing at a high level last year. And I always look at, say, Stuart Dallas, who is, I'm not being funny, Andrew, last year he was nine out of ten, nine out of ten every week, no matter what position he played, in. not been able to quite hit the heights. You could throw Mateus Click in there as well. And if you centre it on the midfield, I think that's where the, the biggest issues uh, have been in terms of, you know, former people not quite getting back to where they were. I think Stuart Dallas, we know, is very candid in, in saying that he'd lost somebody close to him before on the international breaks, and that definitely affected his play. He's coming back to the player that we know uh, he was or is. Um, Mateus has had COVID twice and has been really unfortunate in that respect. And then on top of that, and the, there's been, what I'd say, a lot more injuries than even Bielsa allows for. And he allows for four every match day. But even he said that the six that they've had recently was an unusual amount. And uh, as we know now, this week, you know, there's four key players, three hamstring injuries and, and a heel injury, uh, which means that they're going to be light going into the Chelsea game. So injuries has been a, a big factor. You can't ignore it. Uh, but also, I think generally a loss of form for, for some people at the beginning of, of the season. But I think the signs of it's coming back, Ender. Yeah, and I guess you, you could probably throw Luke Aileen into that as well as a player who was, you know, probably outperforming where he is as a player last year when he when he came up first. Calvin Phillips, again, injured for large parts, but might have a little bit of that Euros hangover that we keep hearing about with the, the England players as well. I... Um, I'm almost weary of throwing the tiredness element into it because of what happened last year in the backlash that we all saw with uh, the presenter on TV. But uh, is there a sense that maybe there is actually a sense of tiredness within this team because they went from the amazing season that they had last year to a Euros competition and then almost immediately back into Bielsa ball and the high intensity uh, football he expects. Is there is there a sense that this team might be just a little bit tired from the uh, the schedule? Well, I think the evidence suggests maybe not, or certainly not in in comparison to other sides. Interestingly, Bielsa said just a few weeks ago that every side across the Premier League is running less than this season when it was put to him that his was too. And he said, "Yes, I know that, but our intensity says is still up there." So. Um, 
people are running less. I would say, and that would be to to the quick turnaround after the the shutdown and then the restart after, after COVID, if you like, and obviously Euros, which just involves a load of the Premier League side. So I would say yes, there is an element of that. I remember speaking to Mateus Cook at the beginning of the summer, and I know he felt particularly that he could have done with a bit more time off. But you've got players now in that squad that are, what, three, nearly four years into Bielsa's reign. And some of them are, you know, 30 now, 31. And I suppose it would take it straight. However, I, I don't think you can level it and say they are tired. And certainly you can't say that they're not believing in what they're doing still. Um, you can mm. tell, certainly the recent performances, and that they are still believing that he's that he's going about this the right way and that they will still get the results. Even if you look at his Premier League record, it's still pretty good for a side that you would not have expected to finish anywhere like they did last season. And a side who I think this season could still finish mid-table. Yeah, the Premier League is so condensed at the moment that, you know, it, it, almost like last year, you can, you can start the season slowly, but by mid-Christmas, three or four wins might get you up to 10th or 11th at this point in time. In terms of the individual players... Patrick Bamford is someone that's been out for a large chunk of the season. And I, I guess it, it, he probably surprised a lot of people last year with the amount of goals that he scored and the importance of him for the team. And I, I would I would dare say he probably surprised a lot, a lot of people at Leeds how important he was in the Premier League. What, what's the sense at the club this year about his... Uh, re- their reliance on him, really, because I know like Rafinha is obviously one of the most talented players in the, in the team, but Rodrigo was almost brought to the club as maybe a replacement for Patrick Bamford. So is there a sense that Patrick Bamford is now a key player under Bayelsa and that like he is almost undroppable when he is fit? I think for those that were the Downton Thomases amongst the, you know, the, the Patrick Bamford and Myers or otherwise, um, I think a lot of them have come to realise over the period of two and a bit months that he was out, what exactly what he did for the side. Yes, he got his goals last year, which was a tremendous return for somebody that had been criticised for missing lots of chances, particularly in the championship. But to come up with, you know, 17 goals last year, that was, that was super. So they knew that that was a big factor, but also... What he does end it is the press, and he leads the press because it starts on the front. The whole idea of the Elsable is that you you win and, and cause you win possession, you cause mistakes, and you're obviously high at the park and turn it over. And that has to be that has to start with with Bielsa, with uh, Bamford, and nobody else does it quite the same. You know, Tyler Roberts is getting into that mode a lot more. Now he's two really good ninety minutes lately, but he sometimes plays at ten. They've even had you know Dan James up there playing at 10 too, and, and he'll run all day with Dan James. But in terms of being a natural fit for that position, Bamford's the one. And as I say, those who've doubted his, his role in the side, who haven't seen his contribution, have seen it because the ball hasn't stuck. You know, when you look, I look down at the Brighton game, which was a really awful game, but they, come away, they came away with a draw and nothing was sticking in, in dreadful conditions, I get that. But you really missed him that day. And obviously he comes back and scores the goal at the weekend and, and gets injured again with a hamstring injury along with a Cooper and Phillips, which is, which is a blow. And just having that instinct as well, and you know, to put the ball in the back of the net, you know, that was, that was a big, big moment. He saw the relief on his face. So it has been a huge miss and there's nobody quite like it. And you mentioned Rodrigo Ender. You know, is he nine? Is he ten? You know, this debate goes on. I think superbly talented player. Some people say waste of money. Um, it's almost like the system isn't designed for him, if you like. But for me, quality will always shine. And 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 he was really showing it, and then got injured. And he's injured again at the moment with a heel problem. 
Um, I think over the season you'll see his value, but I think there's questions as to whether it's it's worth 29 million. The Bielsa sort of revolution at the club has brought such so much positivity that you'd you'd almost forget about the financial instability of the club for so many years over the the last uh, I suppose the 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 late noughties and bringing it's finally just come full circle and they're a, an established Premier League club again. But to push on to the next level it seems that Leeds need some investment. They need uh, uh, someone who's going to be able to inject more money than the current current ownership has done or can do. Just physically, I, I, I don't doubt that he actually wants to do it. I just don't know if he actually can do it. And that sort of brings us on to the 49ers uh, takeover. So you might bring us through this story. This sort of came up last week and um, when... People, it came to it came to light that the 49ers enterprise, the same NFL, same company that owns the NFL company, actually have a option in their uh, in the deal that they've signed to take over the club in full in 2024. So you might just take us through this story and how it came about. Yeah, sure. So the the 49ers, what three years ago, came in as a sort of 10 percent stakeholders and put in you know several millions into the club at the time it was difficult at the time just to see how much it was um but it was done on sort of like a via a i think they call it a reverse ratchet loan so the longer they sort of stayed in the more their and the longer leader of the championship the more their their investment was worth and they eventually scored 15 percent, and it's gone up and now they've just scored another seven percent and now up to 44 percent. so that's where they stand so they're still minority shareholders and uh, but they put significant millions of pounds into the club. In fact, at the beginning of the year, I think it was fifty, about fifty million pounds all in, uh, of which some went to Andrea Raggianzani, who is the majority shareholder, and uh, of course, and then another fifty percent, if you like, went into sort of working capital and to help through and um, keep the club running. There's been another significant sum that's gone in now. Um, they're at 44%. They're not going to stop. And as you've quite rightly said, there's a deal in place, which um, which was reported on last week, where um, now the figures are moot, I would say, at this stage. However, The Athletic reported that they understood that if the 49ers were to take over the entire club and the football ground, Ellen Road itself, which is owned by Andrea Rajanzani, although they do have a stake in it, we understand already, they did admit that to us, um, if they were to do that, it would be for a price of around £470 million as it stands now. Now, I was then told that it was by a source close to the deal that it could be as much as £500 million or plus all in. Um, it depends whether Rajasani has to keep funding or uh, in that period up to January 2024, etc. There are various caveats, one including voiding the deal if he, if Rogers on to go and buy another club in Europe, say, and then wasn't able to hang on to, to Leeds United. So there's lots of caveats, but they're the sort of figures we're talking. They're interested in taking over the club and, and the ground. And we know that there are plans afoot and to make the ground, which is about 38,000 or so capacity at the moment, to turn it into sort of 55, maybe 60,000 over the coming years. So that's the plan. Rajazani on his own can't do that. He's brought the 49ers in, as you say, and now they're looking at, like other you know, NFL uh, outfits, are looking at taking over a football club here. It was interesting, though, and when they first came in, they when we asked them, said, look, will you be looking to do what others have done, like at Liverpool, et cetera? And they were sort of very quite reticent to, to admit that. But clearly, they're um, they're in that in that ballpark quite literally now. But they're all, both parties really keen to say that they're working together, et cetera. But 
all you can see is that at the end, Andrea Rodazani will eventually become either not involved at all or maybe sort of very minor, minor shareholder or, or hold some sort of nominal position. But as it stands at the moment, they're very keen to make it working together. But there is an inevitability that this, that this will happen. And I think it will happen before January 2024, which is when the deal or the deadline for that deal seems to expire. Yeah, and it's it's difficult to find accurate figures for this, so I'm I'm just sort of going off what I'm I'm reading. The 49ers enterprise is worth in 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 the midst of it about 4.2 billion. That is something that an individual is going to struggle to compete with in terms of uh, Radrazani himself. So, is there a sense that when the 49ers take over, that that actually could lead to bigger and better things for Leeds United, or is there still that worry that you know, maybe another takeover in such a short period of time might cause a little bit of instability. Yeah, you mean if they were to take over, would they then flip the club? I, I haven't heard that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know that. I, I think they are the amount of time they've spent here, and uh, and the amount of effort they've put into sort of redesigning, if you like, the ground and then taking it to literally to a different level, suggests that it's a it's a long term look by them. And when you look at who's involved in the 49ers enterprises, and as you say, that's the investment arm of the San Francisco 49ers. It's people like Pete Lowy. Now, Pete Lowy is a big Legion United fan. He's from Australia originally, lives in LA, uh, but they're very, very big on property, the Lowy family. They have the, um, there's several sites called Westfield over here, one down in London. There's one in Bradford, not too far away from Leeds as well. And they're huge when it comes to investing in property and developing property. And so he's very keen on it. And I think he's got a real emotional attachment. He generally is a Legion United fan as well. So he's like one of the uh, investors. There's another guy, Chad Hurley as well, who people will, will probably be aware that, uh, you know, on social media that he's, you know, a big player too. So this group of investors, they'll be looking for a return on their money and they're going to get that, obviously, if they can build Ellen Road into like a, you know, a super ground, if you like, get the big corporates going and, you know, get more fans through there and maintain a Premier League place as well. That's the important thing. So, I don't see them flipping it, to be quite honest. I see them being heavily invested in this, literally and sort of, you know, metaphorically as well going forward. Um, so what that will mean, I mean, I, I sort of try and say to people, Andrew, that, you know, Ellen Road is going to change. Physically, it's going to change. And try and enjoy it for its memories, you know, for going down through the 60s, the 70s, and particularly when you look at the West End, which is the one where we, that we sit in for BBC Leeds and broadcast from, you know, that's still very much as it was back in those days. All that is going to change and it'll lose something clearly. But it, as long as they can keep the soul and the essence of it somewhere, then it will still be a formidable place to come. But it's just going to look very different. But it has to, otherwise they're not going to compete. And they're just not, mm. you can't get the revenues through. Look at Old Trafford, 72,000, the Emirates, you know, Anfield. They've all done it. They've got to do it. Everton are the midst to do it and they're going through a shocking time. But they, they know they've got to do it. And, and Leeds are no different either so yeah it's it's inevitable if they're going to keep pace otherwise they're just not going to compete and you know ended that within a year or so provided leads stay in the premier league fans will want to see them go that next step and i really think they can only do that with this major investment by the 49ers yeah ellen road is still definitely one of the best sounding stadiums it's definitely one of those stadiums that holds the the in intensity and the atmosphere and it sort of matches up the way that Leeds play football so it's it's a really enjoyable place to watch football at the minute so it would be a shame to to lose that but i guess most teams are building stadiums for a reason they see it as the way to help progress the club and and build it into a sort of a 
a, a new shinier thing. Best case scenario for this, just before we finish up, can you see Leeds becoming back, like sort of where they were before the financial instability of the early 2000s? Can you see them ever pushing forward and becoming maybe competing for the top four again and maybe competing for European football again if this, if this all goes best case scenario for them? Yeah. Oh, yes, I can, because I think the elements are there. Um, and I think the way that Andrea Rajadzani has, has sort of done it and built the club back up, um, you know, via Victor Orta and Angus Kinnear, who are the sport director and the chief executive, uh, you know, respectively, the, the massive cure bringing Bielsa in, finding value in players, both first team and in the under 23s. On the playing side, and Bielsa's a key part of this, and we don't know what his future will be beyond the end of the end of the, the season. That's all moving in the right direction. And it's all been done relatively, not massive, but relatively cheaply, although they have invested heavily, but compared to some, clearly they're not trying to do it as a quick fix. Off the pitch, this is where they need to, to get um, more slick and more corporate and more savvy, and they can only do that with, with the help of this investment. Once that's done, yes, I can see them being in a position, if they stay in the Premier League this season, I can see within a couple of years that they could be able to challenge for the European positions. Obviously, they finished ninth last year and went too far away, but I think, would the club be ready to, for a sustained attack on Europe right now? answer is no. But in a few years, if they continue like this, then, then yes, they could. Top four, well, interesting. They've got Chelsea this weekend and they've got Man City away also this weekend and uh, in this week, and they've got Liverpool away all in this month and they've got Arsenal at home too. Last season, the Chelsea game where even though they took the lead and they lost 3-1, it was the game where you thought, and it was about this time of year, you thought, wow, the level to the top four is so huge. Mm. And that's they've still got a long way to go to bridge that. And you have to say in the two that on this journey, they are going to have to sell one or two players. And you think, will Phillips be here this time next year? Will Rafinha be here this time next year? You know, the likelihood, no, there isn't. Because at the moment, Leeds are that club where huge but still at the moment they have to generate revenue from from players and, and in certain ways i would say because they'll be still be looked at as the step before the next step you know before you go to old trafford before you go to well hoping old trafford leads this case before you go to anfield and and the etihad and what have you or elsewhere so there's still an element of that at this stage so realistically if it keeps going like this then I think within three to five years, I think they've got a great chance of, of being serious, serious players in the Premier League. Yeah. Well, we'll continue to follow the lead story closely here in Ireland. Obviously, there's a good affiliation with the club yeah. uh, because of Johnny Giles. So we'll continue to follow it. Adam Pope from the BBC, thanks very much for that. Pleasure, Ender. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. All right, so that is us done on this week's Team 33. Thanks to you as ever for listening. If you want to listen back to that podcast or any of the Team 33 podcasts, you can get them in the OTB Podcast Network on the OTB Sports app. That is available to download in your App Store or Google Play Store as well. You can get notified every time a podcast goes live if you subscribe to the Team 33 feed. It's also available on our YouTube channel as well, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. We'll be back again in the same time, same place next week. But until then, Ewa Slankofoil, take away Johan.